This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Tommy Caldwell, accomplished rock climber and author of The Push. Caldwell has made the first free ascents of several rock climbing routes on El Capitan in Yosemite, including the Don Wall, a project that took him seven years to complete. He chronicles this climb in his memoir, The Push, along with how he began climbing as a child, his journey from sport climbing to big walls and mountain expeditions, and the challenges he's faced personally and in his sport. Caldwell was held hostage by militants in Kyrgyzstan in his early climbing career, an experience that changed him forever and led to the writing of his memoir. We began the discussion with Caldwell discussing what he was like as a young boy growing up in Estes Park, Colorado. Yeah, I mean, I was a, I was a kind of a strange kid, honestly. I was born super early, like I think seven weeks early, super, really premature, and kind of underdeveloped. And in some ways, I felt like that plagued me for the very first maybe uh, four or five years of my life. I was always I struggled quite a lot. I had learning disabilities. Um, I was socially, I just struggled a lot socially as well. But I did love the outside. Like I was, I was such an introvert that I kind of got into these like methodical things, like digging ditches or just like tooling around in the mountains all by myself. And so, from a really really young age, um, being alone in the mountains was was sort of my safe place. And it was obviously something your parents encouraged, especially your dad, who was a bodybuilder and a climber. Yeah, the relationship with my dad is, um, I I think a lot of people find that to be one of the most fascinating aspects of this book, just because fathers are so influential um, for so many of us. And my father was such a character, such a strong personality that um, he shaped me in so many ways. Um, Like you said, he was a bodybuilder and a mountain guide, Um, but he stopped bodybuilding when I was really young. Um, so I, I'm, I remember more the mountain guide side of it. And, you know, I think he believed that he could use the mountains to sort of strengthen his underground sort of weakling child. <laughs> you know, he really believed that adventure was the was the path to creating a strong person. Like I like to say that he he really believed that he that you should prepare your child for the path, not the path for for your child. And so. He he took me in the mountains on these on these crazy adventures from a really young age, and part of that was just because that's what he liked to do. Um, but the other part is that he he believed it would it would build confidence in me. So did you feel like these early incidents of adversity or sort of overcoming your own tininess or your introvertedness? is what led you to not just climbing, but this determination that you have inside? Yeah, I think the determination part was a little bit inherent. And I, I think it, I could credit it a little bit to that's sort of just all I had <laughs> when I was young. Um, I think people who aren't skilled in a lot of ways tend to just become more focused in one way. And I, you know, I, I, I felt like I could um, just focus on sort of the methodical physical aspect of like moving through the mountains. And I became addicted to that. And so that's probably what fostered that, but also these experiences in the mountains, like we'd go, you know, one, another story 
um, that is actually in my book is when I climbed Long's Peak, which is like a 14,000 foot peak near my home here in Estes. Um, when I was, I, I actually climbed it when I was seven for the first time. I hiked up it with uh, for my seventh birthday, but then I also climbed it again when I was 12. I climbed the Diamond Face, which is like a 2,000 foot rock wall on Long's Peak, and this was kind of my first big wall climb. And it was it was a big exhausting day, like 20 hours of moving through the mountains. And it's not the kind of thing that most 12 year olds really enjoy, but my dad just had this energy about him. Like he made me believe, like when we get excited, he'd kind of look at me with this fire in his eyes and be like, this is what life is about. You know, this is real adventure. And I idolized him. So, um, you know, I started, I believed that and therefore I got quite good at that from a really young age. So what was the attraction then to big wall climbing and then big wall climbing that no one had free climbed before? So when I was um, probably from the time I was five until around the time I was 10, uh, my family every summer during our summer vacations would uh, load in our car and drive to Yosemite. And I would watch my dad climb El Capitan and the other big walls and we would stay in camp four which is sort of the center of the climbing universe in a lot of ways and we'd hang out with the climbers and um it was this very vagabond you know these people who had almost no money and they lived completely for climbing but they all had so much energy and they're super super fun people to be around really life-loving um vibrant people and i think i liked that community and then and the ones that could climb the big walls were like superheroes to me. They were, you know, was, these walls are just so big and shocking and they look so impossible. So as a five-year-old looking up there and imagining climbing them, um, it just it just seemed so crazy. So I became a good competition climber and sport climber. And at some point I was like, maybe I could go climb those big walls. And so I sort of circled around to this uh, more adventurous big wall um, climbing community and went to El Cap when I was, uh, I think, 16 for the first time to try and climb it myself with my father as my guide. And we did. We climbed a route called the Salathe Wall. But I was, I was like a really good sport climber at this time. And so I figured I could go and free climb the Salathe Wall and didn't even get close to that. Like trying to free climb on a big wall just felt very scary and difficult. And so we managed to get to the top of the wall. But it wasn't as sort of a triumphant of, of experience as you might think. It actually beat me down. <laughs> and for a few months afterwards, I swore that I would never return to that style of climbing. But you did. I did, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I think that um, for whatever reason, that experience, it, it was so hard for me that it made me want to get better. You know, I felt like it, it sort of fit in the realm of things that I could potentially be good at because I had this adventurous climbing background. I'd gotten strong from competition and sport climbing. I should be good up there, but I just found it so scary at first. So is that part of it, sort of conquering? I mean, I don't think when you climb, it's like you're conquering, you're figuring out problems and um, finding solutions. But is is that always sort of upping the stakes for you in terms of what you climb? I mean, I think it's a curiosity about how far we can take it, what we can physically do with our bodies, what we can physically endure. You know, there's so many elements that appeal to me. I think the idea of being able to take something that seems improbable and 
or or just miserable for most people and and find joy in it has always appealed to me you know that's one of the reasons i when i get into bigger mountain climbing and you know you go for 50 hours without sleeping and people you know the people who can laugh through that kind of experience are the people that i sort of gravitate towards they're the ones that i that i try and partner up with and go out on these mountain experiences because i think i think in a way it's like if you can if you can take something that seems improbable or or really unpleasant for most people and find joy in it and climbing you can that can transcend to other places in life it kind of makes it it's like good training for hardship I'm the kind of person that if I don't experience pain for a few months, I, I seek it out. I come up with some big adventure. I go in the mountains. I go for a long run. Like, I just need that for some reason. I don't know if I can really articulate it, except that I'm just sort of addicted to it. And I don't know, honestly, whether that's like a good addiction or a bad addiction. <laughs> like some, I've definitely equated it many times in my life to being like a drug addiction. Like it seems unhealthy in ways, but but then it also gets me through the hard times in life and so, yeah, maybe it's both. Once you got into these big wall climbing and big expeditions, you went to Kyrgyzstan with your girlfriend at the time and a few other people. And during that time when you were climbing uh, some big walls, you were kidnapped. Yeah, so it was my first big international climbing expedition. I was a big wall climber. I spent a lot of time in Yosemite um, at that time in my life um, when I was 20 years old. And the chance to go to Kyrgyzstan or to go on a big expedition, it felt a little bit like winning the lottery to me. I wasn't a hugely known climber at that point. Um, I'd won a few competitions, but I, and I'd free climbed El Cap, but not that many, you know, they're just like being a professional climber wasn't much of a thing. Although there were a handful of people who had figured out a way to make it a a profession. And my girlfriend, Beth Rodden, was one of them. And so she got invited on this trip to Kyrgyzstan and I managed to sort of weasel my way onto the trip as a, as a rigger for the ropes. We were supposed to go and make, uh, make advertisements for, for the North face because she was a North face sponsored athlete. So we planned the trip. Uh, we helicoptered into a remote Valley in Southwest Kyrgyzstan and spent about a week in this very, very idyllic place, like beautiful, huge mountains, really, really amazing local villagers that would bring us like yak milk and bread in the morning and we'd hang out with them they'd dress in these in this brightly colored clothing you know they saw a few western climbers each year but for the most part they just lived deep in the mountains like herding yaks and it was such a it was such a wonderful place i mean the political situation is is quite complicated but i think really it boiled down to uh, opium trafficking for um, to fund the taliban and so a uh, rebel group called the Islamic Movement of Uzbekistan uh, moved into this valley while we were climbing. And they found us up on a wall, a thousand feet up, and they took us hostage. And the way they did that is they came up to the base of the wall with, these, with their long range of assault rifles and shot up at us. Like That's how we woke up in the morning. And that's how we knew we had to come down. And then we were taken hostage for the next six days. You wrote about at the point where you were really hungry, you found energy as other people in the group were weakening. This experience was such a life turning point in so many ways. Like it was so intense that I I kind of view my whole life as like what led up to Kyrgyzstan and what happened since then. 
being able to unpack that experience was the reason that I decided to write this book in the first place. Like, how did this affect me? You know, I knew that who I am today is so, so much shaped by that experience. Um, but the being brought to life at the end of the experience was, you know, kind of an unexpected thing. Like we, we got taken hostage. We had to abandon all of our food and warm clothing along with our captors because why we were there, uh, this war broke out. Like the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan moved into this valley and then the Kyrgyz military came in to the valley from the other side. And it seems so crazy because we were like 30 miles from the nearest road. This this war broke out in this very, very remote location. But we had to run from the Kyrgyz military as captors. And so for that six days of captivity, we didn't have any food or warm clothing. And then every, during the daylight hours, we would have to sort of bury ourselves in little holes in the ground or, or tuck ourselves in, in rocks, you know, under rocks and, and hide as much as possible. We were, we were on the verge of hypothermia the whole time. Like, I remember after each day, we'd crawl out of our places and my teeth would hurt from chattering so much all night. And we lost a lot of weight. We probably lost around 20 pounds each. We were just wasting away. And you would think that that kind of physical and mental stress would just make you downward spiral. But I found that after about four or five days of this, I kind of came back to life. Like my senses were heightened. Um, I felt almost invincible. Like I felt alert in a way that I never have, that I never had experienced in the past. And looking back at it now, I'm just like, I think it was this, this survival instinct. So as a climber, having had that happen in your life, it built this tremendous curiosity. Like I know that we are physically capable of, of so much more than you could ever really imagine. And so when you push yourself to that point, you know, your body's reaction is to kind of come to life. And so I think a lot of ultra athletes tap into that, you know, as a climber that I was like, I could use this. I could, you know, I could use this. So, so much of my climbing um, since then has been almost an attempt to find out more about about that, to bring myself back to that place. Because, you know, what we do is really any athlete is we're trying to physically figure out what, where our limits lie. So, you know, when when you were all there, you you ultimately had to make a choice that was really hard, which was, you know, you could push your captor off a cliff. Basically, Beth and, you know, my girlfriend Beth and I, really felt strongly that we should just try and outlast our captors. Like they had, they had hiked over a big mountain pass to get to us. We were almost more used to being in the mountains than they were. We felt like if we just waited it out, they would eventually just become too weak and we'd be able to just run away. Um, the other two members of our climbing expedition, John Dickey and Jason Singer, felt like we needed to sort of take matters into our own hands more quickly, like overcome our captors. And so during those daylight hours when we would be hiding, um, Jason would constantly be talking about ways to do this and in these very gory ways. He seemed, he, you know, he would talk about grabbing rocks and bashing in their heads or, um, you know, stealing their guns, and he would he would sit there and look at their guns and figure out where the where the safety was and how to use their guns. We you know we we could talk to each other relatively freely because they didn't speak any English, and um, so we would just 
make our voice tone sound like we were talking casually about or about something else, but he would be talking in these very gory ways about how to kill them kind of right in front of them. And I hated that. You know, we had watched them kill a soldier in front of us point blank. And I just didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to be that evil person. I didn't want to be part of that. Um, so I was really against that. And it almost split us into two groups. Um, like we, in some ways, the four of us bonded together and, in survival, but in other ways, we, you know, I sort of despised, um, I sort of despised Jason's sort of mentality. But uh, we also needed each other. Like he also was very heroic in many ways. So it was just a, it was just a complicated situation. But on our sixth night of captivity, it just two things happened. We ended up with just one remaining captor climbing up this very steep, like two thousand foot mountainside and and this was because the main rebel like the the main guy in our group abdul decided to try and go back to our base camp like circle back to our base camp and get some food and he told us just to go to the top of this mountain and meet him there um, but i think when at the time that this plan was hatched he had no idea how kind of steep and big this mountainside was that he wanted us to go straight up so if we found ourselves left with just one remaining captor um we called him sue his name was sharapov and we were climbing up this 2,000 foot mountainside. And it was the first time in those six days where it got cloudy. And, you know, we'd only move around at night. So it was, it was the middle of the night, but you could look up and see the clouds moving around. So we're climbing up at night just under moonlight. And Sherapov was quite scared, um, very uncomfortable. He started to turn to us to ask him, to ask us where to go, what to grab onto. We would sort of like, put our hands on his thighs and push him up over steep sections. And it just became dead obvious that this was, this was so obvious. It was so, this would be a, this was our time to escape. And I'd start to worry that all of us were just going to die from it, from exposure. So as we're climbing up this mountainside, it became so obvious to all of us that this would be a really easy time to escape. But Beth and I, didn't want to actually do the act like we were going to stay above out of the fall line but we had kind of come around to the fact that this should happen so we're going to let jason and john help sue and find a place to just push him down like push him off this mountain but it turns out that's just like a really hard thing to do so um as we got higher and higher they didn't they just like never made it happen so as we're about to get to the top of this mountain and our chance was going to be gone shortly. I turned to Beth and I was like, I don't think they're going to be able to do it. Um, I think if we want to escape, I'm going to have to do it. What do you, what do you think? And she just didn't say anything. So in that moment, I took it upon myself and I ran up behind him and I, and I pushed him off this mountainside. This is the turning point in my life. This is the moment where I, where I think is, is kind of like the most <laughs> sort of dramatic uh, moment. And, you know, writing about that was why I wrote this book. Yeah, I think it was just out of desperation that I came to this place that I really feel like I had, had to take matters into our own hands. So after that, you set your sight on something you'd been working on for that you then worked on for seven years, which was to climb the Don Wall free. Not, not an aid climb. So that means, you know, you don't put pieces in and step on the rope to get up. That That's kind of the other central part of your book. Yeah, the Dawn Wall was, for me, it was, it was 
a big goal. Like I'd spent so many years after Kyrgyzstan trying to get back to that place of curiosity, like figure out what I was physically capable of. And so I had done that through big wall climbing and I'd gone to El Capitan every year and repeated the existing routes and found my own and kind of gotten progressively more successful in that world. But I'd never gotten back to that place of like confronting my limit. And so in, on one hand, the Dawn Wall started out as sort of this curiosity, like if I take on this project that is so much bigger and harder than anything I've ever climbed, am I going to satiate that curiosity? So, you know, when I first started looking at the Dawn Wall, kind of peering over on that side of El Cap, that's what I was thinking. But it just seemed too daunting. Like I knew it would take like five or 10 years of my life to actually piece together something like that. And I just wasn't sure that I wanted to take something on like that. Um, and then Beth left me and I was at a place of like emotional need in my life. And so I, you know, my way to deal with that was to go into the mountains and do something that completely consumed me to distract me. And so the Dawn wall became that I decided to go up on the Dawn wall and both be distracted, but also be sort of cope with my emotional loss um, through this possibility. Like, could I, could I do something that was, that was above and beyond and just cooler than anything I had done? And so I think that's the first couple years of working on the Don Wall where that, you know, that was kind of why I did it. And then it became such this life energizing experience that I just came back year after year for seven years. And Kevin Jorgensen, joined me and we had this amazing partnership um you know my whole community would surround me i met my wife during this time we had a baby and it just kind of became this this high point of every year every fall season i would go to yosemite and i'd spend a couple months up living up on the side of el cap but there's also the side of it where like what what was going to happen if i put seven years of my life into this thing or eight years of my life and and then just failed in the end i think it was on our on our seventh year my seventh year kevin's uh sixth year because he joined me on year two we finally figured out a way to piece it together you know that experience became sort of the mechanism that made me write this book because it sort of blew up in the media in this very unexpected way one thing you mentioned is during this seven-year period, you met your wife, Becca. You would be in Yosemite and then go back to Estes Park, and you met her in Estes. And it was just really different from something you experienced before. She was light and happy and um, just brought you to a good place. And you wrote in one sentence, but you don't talk about it a lot, was um, you said, Becca loved you, but she loved God more. So in your forming a new relationship and a marriage with someone, you know, Christianity was very important to Becca and you had, it seemed like you had some thinking to do. Yeah. I mean, I still do. I would say this is, uh, you know, Becca was, I guess I would say is a, a born again Christian and religion was a, was a big part of her life, but that's not how our relationship started. Like we met at a pub near my house. She was such this life-loving, kind of vibrant 
personality. I think that's what attracted me to her so much in the beginning. She was just so positive. And I was like, man, I didn't know that this existed. <laughs> like, you know, a, a girl that was just so life loving and positive. As we got to know each other, you know, she credited basically everything good in her life to her religion, which I had never been around that before. We went to church when I was a kid. Um, we we're around sort of a Christian community, but we weren't devout by any means. And the way that Becca describes it is that she she struggled a lot before she kind of found God. And so when we were getting together, she's like, "I, you know, you have to be sort of the Christian leader of our la- of our household." You're, you know, she had a very traditional view on that, and so I started trying to live up to her standards. And I, you know, I must say, I, I fail mightily to this day in that way. And that's probably didn't, why I didn't write so much about it in the book. But, you know, I've tried, I tried for a time to become sort of the Christian leader of our household. And um, it never has felt sort of as important or as strong to me as it does to her. And we have found a way in our lives to make that work, I guess. And, you know, I think that I, you know, I'm still open to, (laughs) to God presenting himself in my life, but I've never, I've never felt it sort of as as visceral as viscerally as she does. But I admire that tremendously about her. Like, I wish that that would happen to me. Um, But just to this day, it hasn't. So when you sat down to write this, I understand um, that you, you got up every day at 4 a.m., for a year to write this, did it feel like a similar like Don Wall experience where you're just like, okay, I'm going to do this, whatever it takes and figure out the moves? Yeah. I mean, I just, I treated it like I, like I did climbing. I, um, I, as you said, I ran towards the pain. <laughs> I'm not, I don't love waking up early in the morning, but I wanted to spend time with my family. I wanted to spend a lot of quality time with my family. I knew it would take me a tremendous amount of work to write this book. So the only way I knew how to do that was to implement discipline, like the same kind of discipline that I had in climbing. So for me, that meant getting up really early, four o'clock in the morning every day, sitting down and forcing myself to write no matter what. Like even if I wasn't feeling it, I would sit in front of my computer and I would start typing. And a lot of times I would type pages and pages that would I would just end up throwing out. But, um, you know, I, I wasn't, I am not a trained writer. So anything that's good about this book came through both just that discipline, like editing and re-editing and figuring it out, but also um, relying on partnerships with with good writers and friends and creating a team that could help me make it what it is. Is there something that you hope your readers get out of it? One after effect of, of this book is I get emails daily of people just saying how inspired they were. I think people do find it uplifting. And I think that has to do with the fact that I am, you know, I was kind of a, I was kind of a weakling as a child and um, you know, I've, I've accomplished these big things, but I'm still, I'm still pretty shy. I'm kind of humble. I'm not all that smart. <laughs> I think, I think I'm a pretty relatable person as a person. People find that idea very inspiring. Like you don't have to be a sort of larger than life person to, um, to sort of accomplish these things or have these big dreams of yours come true. You just need to be disciplined about it. So I think, yeah, that's what I want people to get. Like I want people to look at their own lives and, and, and find 
the motivation to sort of pursue the things and maybe not even accomplish those things like but the pursuit is is really where the magic is and so yeah i hope people find that in this book can you read a passage from an author that influenced you uh while you were writing this i came across this book the west ridge of everest while writing my book um it's written by a guy named tom hornbein who is um you know, a little bit of a peer of mine. He lives in Estes Park. He's like 85 now. He he went on this incredible expedition to climb Mount Everest when he was quite young. And this was when you had to walk for like a month to even get to the mountain. And the book, in my mind, is really incredible, partially because the adventure is is so grand. You know, he walked for a month. He ended up climbing this new route on the mountain. Um and, but the way he writes about it is so visual, it really brings the scene to life. So I found myself in those moments where I was having trouble finding that inspiration, you know, at like five o'clock in the morning to write well, I would oftentimes open his book um, and start reading. And it was just the nature writing that, that intrigued me the most. So, um, you know, I just, right before we got on the phone here, I started flipping through his book and I found one one passage that I circled, and I'm going to read that. From Lukla, the way to Everest led north through the uh, corpuscular gorge of the Daku Kosai, an icy, boulder-choked river that churned with glacial runoff. We spent the first night of our trek in the hamlet of Pekding, a collection of a half-dozen homes and lodges crowded onto a shelf of level ground on a slope above the river. The air took on a wintry sting as night fell, and in the morning, as I headed up the trail, a glaze of frost sparkled from the rhododendron leaves. But the Everest region lies 28 degrees north latitude, just beyond the tropics, and as soon as the sun rose high enough to penetrate the depths of the canyon, the temperature soared. By noon, after we crossed the wobbly footbridge suspended high over the river, the fourth river crossing of the day, rivulets of sweat were dripping off my chin, and I peeled down to shorts and a t-shirt. Beyond the bridge, the dirt path abandoned the banks of the Doku Kosai and zigzagged up the steep canyon wall, ascending through, through a romantic stand of pine. The spectacularly fluted ice pinnacles of Tamsuku and Kasum Kangaroo pierced the sky more than two vertical miles above. It was magnificent country, as topographically imposing as any landscape on earth, but it wasn't wilderness and hadn't been for hundreds of years. Every scat scrap of arable land had been terraced and planted with barley, bitter buckwheat, or potatoes. Springs of prayer, fla prayer flags were strung across the hillsides in ancient Buddhist Cotins and walls of exquisitely carved manti stones stood sentinel over even the highest passages as I made my way up from the river. You know, as I mentioned before, reading is a little bit hard for me because my eyes don't track smoothly. So sorry about that. Um, but when I sit down and, and um, you know, really read those passages, I think that one struck me because it really brought the sea to life. And so I tried to do that as much as I could in my book, you know, especially in the high mountain scenes. Like when I went to Patagonia, I think that was one of the places where I most successfully brought the scene to life because it was just one of the 
sort of most moving, beautiful landscapes. And so, you know, I tried to do that as much as possible. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard to write or changed a lot from the first draft? Yeah, what I what I chose to read was something that, you know, like I said before, this was the reason that I wrote this book in the first place was, you know, when, when I decided to write a book, I was like, this is what I need to write about. And so I'm going to read a passage from um, from Kyrgyzstan. This is the very first r- words I wrote in the book. And they definitely changed quite a bit over time. You know, this this was actually maybe in some ways this this was the opposite. This was some of the writing that flowed the most. So this is in Kyrgyzstan. The other the other characters in this passage are Beth Rodden, who is my girlfriend, John Dickey and Jason Singer, and then Sue was the captor that I pushed off the cliff in Kyrgyzstan. Starvation is a funny thing. You feel it first in your stomach, a nauseating pain low in your gut. Your breathing becomes labored and your body slows. Your face turns solemn. Any movement seems like too much to bother. Your mind goes next. Indifference takes over. Emotions dull. But after several days, the pain in my stomach went away. I still don't know how it happened or where it came from. But as everyone else grew weaker, I felt stronger. I noticed my night vision improving. Lines became crisp. By the time the sun had set on the sixth day, I was aware of every sound, every movement. I felt a lightness, a vitality, as though I could race straight uphill without my heart rate rising. The others stumbled every few feet. Delusional or not, I saw myself again as a warrior. With my confidence came acceptance. Singer, Singer was smarter, but I was stronger. Singer could be the commander. I was the soldier. Clarity overtook me. My love for Beth transcended my need for her. I willed my heart to harden. On our sixth night, our captors hatched a plan. They, too, were starving and cold, so Abdul would return to our base camp to scavenge any remaining food and warmer clothes. The rest of us would ascend a 2,000-foot mountainside, a mixture of Tal's fields and nearly vertical cliff bands. To us, at least in our normal states, it was easy terrain. Abdul, after gathering more rations, would come up another side, a less treacherous way, and meet us on top. For the first time, we were alone with Sue. The moon plays tricks in the darkness, casting shadows that dance across the cliffs. A jumbled mess of stone disappears below. Blackness. Far in the distance, stars illuminate the jagged jagged spires and snow-covered mountains. Sue's feet skid, and he lets out a pained grunt. I watch as Singer guides him, pointing out footholds and handholds solid enough to grab. We climb higher. Sue rob- wobbles again, and I hear the clatter of rocks tumbling down the nearly sheer drop-off. Now, now, silently, I'm urging them to do it, willing them to do it. Dickie and Singer resume their guiding. More spots pass where Sue is exposed and insecure. I try not to think about what it is that I'm wishing they would do. As the top nears, Sue gains confidence and scrambles ahead of them, using his hands to keep his balance as he clambers over loose rock. At a more difficult section, just 50 feet from the top, but 20 feet to our right, he slows. Singer and Dickie are still below. I glance down. Our eyes meet. They nod. I look at Beth. I'm going to have to do this, I whisper. It has to be me. 
She trembles. Shadows cross her face. Her lips open slightly, but no sounds escape. For a moment, I stare, we stare at one another. She dips her head. I know. The strength has been growing into a monster inside of me, emerging from nowhere, from everywhere, unlike anything I've known. I accelerate across a series of footholds with the swiftness of a mountain goat, staying silent through the shadows. Fifteen, ten, five feet away and still so he doesn't see me coming. The barrel of his rifle glistens under the stars. I see the outline of the grotesque mole on his upper lip. My foot dislodges a loose chunk of rock. He turns sharply towards me. Our eyes lock. I lunge for the strap of the gun slung over his shoulder. I pull as hard as I can and push his shoulder. His body arcs backwards through the blackness outlined by the moon. He cries out in surprise and fear. His body lands on a ledge with a sickening thud and then bounces towards towards oblivion. Do you want to say anything about it? Yeah, I mean, that passage, um, you know, I think I, I wrote it kind of more mechanically at first. And then I came back and I added the really visual details, like the mole on his upper lip. Um, you know, I added like the swiftness of a mountain goat, things like that. You know, I think that is one place that I really wanted to work hard on that passage just because it was so important to my life. And um, in some ways, it, it, it might be the, the darkest passage in the whole book. Where do you write? So when I first write, started writing this book, um, you know, I had a small child at home. Um, and so I actually went into my van. Um, you know, I had to have a uh, like a sprinter van and I would sit in my van um, oftentimes with noise canceling headphones on and write in my van. Um, then I, we decided to build an office through you know, while I was writing the book. So about six months into it, I started writing in my office. It's a very quiet space that's about 100 feet from my house. And so, yeah, that's where I write now. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I go into the mountains. I go climbing. I mean, during during the year that I wrote this book, I was writing all the time. And I was so obsessed by trying to make it as good as possible that I could never get it out of my head. Like, actually, it was was kind of a crux. Like, I went through a bit of a midlife crisis because I was so obsessed by writing this book that I couldn't ever escape it. Like, even when I was not actively writing, it was always it was always churning in there and it, it became me, you know, I was, I was, I was less good of a husband <laughs> during that year long period, I would say. Um, but nowadays I actually don't write tons. Um, you know, I, I think I'm going through a little bit of writing PTSD. I've sort of turned down a lot of writing projects since then because I, you know, I want to, I want to be a present husband. I want to be with my family. I want to climb and I'm not very good at doing all those things at once. So I've sort of put writing down for the time being. Who did you show your work to first to get feedback? So right away in the process, I hired a good friend of mine, Kelly Cordes, to collaborate with. And the reason I did that is because all of my writing for climbing, Rock and Ice and Alpinist magazine had been done with these great editors. And they're used to working with climbers who aren't necessarily trained writers. And so I had gotten used to that relationship where I would where I would write things and then I would then I would show them show those passages to them and then they would help me form them and shape them. And so that's what I wanted the writing of this book to be. I, you know, I didn't want to I didn't want to hire a ghostwriter by any means because I wanted to take that journey. I felt like the best writing really comes straight from the heart and nobody else can do that for you. And I wanted to learn what it was like to write a book. Um, so 
Kelly became my, you know, I, I would say my writing doctor is kind of what I, what I refer to him as. Um, so I would, I would sit down and I would write out chapters and try to make them, you know, sort of pretty good. And then I would start working with him to really shape them in the end. So he became through this process, it became, you know, my best friend in a lot of ways, almost like my personal therapist, <laughs> as well as my writing doctor. Um, you know, it really was a collaborative, amazing relationship. I actually haven't run into any other books or any other authors who wrote in that same sort of, uh, with that same sort of working relationship. How have you dealt with rejection? I probably don't deal very well with rejection. That's why things like, uh, you know, like my divorce, like my wife leaving, leaving me hit me so hard. But, you know, I would say honestly in life, I probably haven't, besides that one very standout experience, I haven't. I can't say that I've experienced a lot of rejection, you know, especially with this book. Like I sat down, I wrote the, I wrote the book proposal and because of the Donwall media craze and everything, it, it, you know, it was just in really high demand. And I think I went really deep. I spent about two months with Kelly trying to make a really good proposal and so sold it very successfully. Um, and so in my writing, I haven't, you know, I've never had to deal with the rejection, I guess. I guess if you did, you'd spend seven years doing another climbing project. <laughs> yeah, possibly. I mean, I, I definitely deal with failure. Okay, though, like climbing is about failing over and over and over again until you finally succeed. Um, and so I experience that almost on a daily basis, whether it be a big project like the Donwall or just like my own little boulder problems or my little training regimes that I do um, in my garage. And what is your favorite word? You know, there's a there's a phrase that I came across in a book called barbarian days um that has stuck with me joyful masochism <laughs> um i know that's two words i'm cheating but uh i really love that phrase you've been listening to first draft a dialogue on writing produced at aspen public radio i'm mitzi rapkin my guest was tommy caldwell accomplished rock climber and author of the push you can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You could email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.